Revelation chapter 9, Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft arose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass or the, of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now, there, we started to dive into this section at the end of our study last week, and we're going to spend the rest of our time and in the rest of chapter 9 tonight to really kind of go deeper. And we're going to talk about some things we talked about last time to kind of clarify. And like I said, some of the things that I wanted to get to that we couldn't, we're going to get into. Now, as we read this, though, and we see this time that this angel is blowing the trumpet here, this fifth trumpet, we see that a key has been given to this powerful angel. And we already looked last time that we were together at... Whether it's Satan himself or whether it's just a mighty angel, we don't know. But whoever it is, the keys have to be given to them. Satan does not rule in hell. Satan is afraid of hell because he doesn't want to go there. And we already spent our time, last time we were together, looking at this bottomless pit. The abyss is the place where the demons said to Jesus, are you going to send us there before the appointed time? They're not looking forward to it. This is a place of torment for the angels that have been in rebellion that God chooses to put in captivity for a time. And ultimately, once they get out of here, they go uh, for his purposes into the lake of fire. And we'll get to that later on in our study. But these locusts that come on the earth are demons that are released at this time in the earth, on the earth, to go and torment mankind. And they sting them, and they are in torment for, for five months. The, the, the sting is so painful, the torment is so painful, they'll want to die, but they're not going to be able to. Now, there are some of you that actually have come to me in the last week or so, and you have actually been reading your scriptures, and you've been noticing some things, and I've loved a question that has come out from some of you. Some of you have noticed that here it says that these demons weren't allowed to harm the green grass. Right? Did anybody else catch this? But we've already seen earlier in the previous trumpet that when that trumpet was blown, a third of the trees were burnt and all of the green grass was burnt. Did anybody here read this and go, wait a minute, all the green grass has already been burnt. Why are these demons told not to harm the earth? Anybody here, you can brag on yourself here. You, a couple of you have noticed that. I've had some people come to me and say, I kind of sense that. And, and honestly, my only answer to you is this. <clears throat> have you ever seen grass get burnt? You ever seen a controlled burn? What happens? The grass grows back. The tree, a third of the trees are burned and whatever God does in that judgment and all the grass is burned, yet that doesn't mean that that grass doesn't grow back. See, a lot of people go, ha, well, no, grass grows back. 
And so the purpose of them sharing this, though, also is that these demons, they're not here to bring judgment. And as we've already seen, when a lot of the, the seals are being opened and so on, things are happening on the earth. Hailstones and we've seen mountains or, or meteorites, if you will, look like a flaming mountain falling in the waters and rivers turning to blood and these different things. We've seen all this stuff happening on the earth. But this torment is directed specifically at the people and at humans. And actually, like you've heard me say before, and I'm going to keep saying it till we're done our study of Revelation, if you had read the Old Testament and you knew the Old Testament, you would read this and go, this is what Joel talked about in chapter 2. So turn back with me to Joel chapter 2 and look at verses 1. Well, we'll look at the whole chapter. Joel chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, let's just take a look at what it says. You see in some of your headings, the day of the Lord. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of what? All right, quick, put a bookmark here. Jump back to Revelation chapter 9 and look at verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Do you see it? And like war, horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way and do not swerve from their path. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path and are, they burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army, before His army, for, the, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Here we see a judgment that Joel is talking about, a day coming. Some of you, if you know the book of Amos, you'll know that the book of Amos, the prophet keeps saying to the nation of Israel, you keep longing for the day of the Lord. It's not going to be what you think. Y'all keep talking about the day of the Lord and oh, we look forward to the day of the Lord. Do you not realize that the day of the Lord is going to be a day of judgment first before the time of triumph? Do you understand that the day of the Lord is going to be like a man who runs from a bear and then ends up getting into his house and he's bit by a snake, you know, and this kind of just gives these pictures of how you think you're going to escape, but you won't. And the day of the Lord is a time in which we see now in Revelation, at this point in the Revelation, when this trumpet is blown, there's going to be an army of demons released from the abyss. And what does the scripture say? Well, the same thing we saw here in Joel is all of a sudden the darkness of them just comes up out of the abyss so much that it darkens the sun and the stars. And they just start to go over the whole earth. And their army is... is anybody notice, though, that this is called the Lord's army? Even though they're demons. How do you reconcile that? How do you deal with the fact that this is the Lord's army, but these are demons? He's using them. Go ahead. They're for his purpose. That's why they're there. God uses everything for his purposes and for his glory. 
That's one, there's a wonderful sermon by Erwin Lutzer, pastor up in Moody Church, called The Lord Satan. And he talks about how God uses Satan for his purposes. Even though Satan is doing what he does, God orchestrates and uses it for his purposes. And it's a sermon he preaches called The Lord's Satan. And so I want you to understand who's opening the seals when all this stuff goes on. Jesus is. This is actually God executing, executing his judgment. You're about to see as we get a little further in Revelation chapter 9 that these angels that have been bound for all the time until this moment are released to go kill a whole lot of people. And if they're bound angels, they're bad angels. Yet God releases them for his purposes. So I want you to understand, and this is kind of go into something that I want to take some time to deal with, and I'll get to that in just a second. But I want to carry over a little bit more where we left off last week in just a bit about whether or not these demons are allowed to sting the believers on the earth or just unbelievers or whether or not they sting everybody. So we kind of touched on that as we were leaving, and I want to show you some more scriptures about that topic in a little bit. But keep reading in chapter 2 and look at verses 18 and following. It says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. This is after the judgment. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I, and I will no more make you a, a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and the foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down, poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain is before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil, and I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten." The hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat it in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and that there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. By the way, has that happened? Has this been fulfilled yet? When it comes to the nation of Israel and his promises? No. So he's just said that Joel way, way back said there's going to be a time when this army comes like they've never seen any army before. and We'll never see an army like this again. And we know now from Revelation that they're coming from the abyss, the bottomless pit, and that they're demons. And God allows them to go over the whole earth and to torment everyone except those who are sealed on, by God on their foreheads. So what I want to do, well, and then he says at the rest of that prophecy, but after that, he'll restore the fortunes of Israel. And never again will they be put to shame. And that is yet to still happen. So what I want to do is I want to go a little bit further in what we left off with last time. And how I told you I lean toward the fact that these demons are allowed to sting everyone, believer and unbeliever, except for the 144,000. Now let me tell you, as a human, in my flesh, I don't like that. But if I'm going to be faithful to teach what I believe the scriptures teach, I'm not going to teach you what I like. I'm going to teach you what the word says. And I believe as I've dug into this, I, again, you can disagree with me because I honestly don't believe any of us fully know whether or not when these demons are released on the earth, whether believers will be spared and only the unbelievers will be stung. 
But if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, the Scripture clearly says the only ones who won't be stung by these demons are who? Those who have the seal of God, who have been sealed by God, have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, we know for a fact who part of that group is, or might be the only group. Go to Revelation chapter 7 and look at verses 1 through 4. We saw this way, way, way at the beginning. Right, it's right before the opening of the first seal, when we began our chronological study of Revelation. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. And we've seen already in our study that that means judgment. And that no wind might blow on the earth of the sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So here we see at the beginning of the tribulation, there's 144,000 Jews. And we've done this study already before. These are, these are actually Jewish men who are virgins, who have been set apart for that exact time, for God's purposes. And at the beginning of the tribulation period, after the rapture of the church, they're the first ones saved at the beginning of this time period. They're the first fruits, and they go out into all the world as evangelists to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of them, multitudes from every nation all over the globe are coming to faith. But if you look closely, it appears that they're the only ones sealed in this manner. And what I want to do is I kind of walk you through some scriptural evidence to kind of help you see where I'm coming from. Please listen to me. You don't have to agree with me because this isn't one of those issues that is a make or break thing. But as we deal with everything that I believe God wants us to deal with, I want to show you why I believe that, that even believers during the tribulation period will be stung by these demons. The only ones not being stung are these guys here. Now, where I'm coming from is a study of Scripture that kind of ties back to the fact. Well, go with me to Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, God made a promise to the nation of Israel. Starting in verse 22. In Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22, it says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit where? Within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God makes a promise to the nation of Israel that a time is coming in which is, he's going to do this for his sake, not their sake. He's going to gather the Jews from all the nations, bring them back into their land, and then he's going to erase their sin. And he's going to put his spirit within them and they're going to walk in obedience to him. Has this been fulfilled yet? No. We've seen a partial fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 where the dry bones have become life again, but they haven't have the breath of God in them yet. 
The nation of Israel has not been redeemed yet. The nation of Israel is still a reproach to all the world. A lot of the things that are still going to happen to the Jews are still yet to come. But at the end of the tribulation, he made a promise that at the end, when all Israel that's left will be saved, he's going to put his spirit within them. Therefore, if he doesn't put his spirit within them until after the tribulation, would it not stand to reason that they don't have his spirit within them during the tribulation. You see, we have a tendency to try to read what God has promised us as the church age into all the time periods, like I've told you before. Know who he's talking to. Understand the way that God works in different ways in different times. We in the church, you can write this down and look at it later, but for time's sake, I need to keep moving. But if we, we in the church in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says that you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And yes, those of us who are in the church, we have been saved by grace through faith. And when we trust God as our Savior, he not only erases our sin, he does what? He puts his spirit within us. And we know that because there are many scriptures that teach this. But why is this only for the Gentile, but also for the Jew, right? The Bible teaches that he's making two men into one, the church, and he's doing it to make the Israelites jealous. But remember, we've seen through our study that before all this stuff happens in this last seven year period called the tribulation period, he's going to remove the church from the earth. And I believe the scriptures show us that things are going to go back for that seven year time period, kind of like they were in the Old Testament. When in the Old Testament, people came to faith in Christ. Did he put his spirit within them? No, his spirit came upon them. That's why even in Revelation, sorry, not Revelation, John chapter 20, when Jesus appears that night in the upper room to the disciples, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But it isn't until Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them. Remember, later on, they're told to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the gift that the Father promised them, which was what? The gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Well, then why, if Jesus tells them to wait until they receive the gift the Father's promised them, and they don't receive that gift until Acts chapter 2, 50 days later, why does he breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit prior to that? Because he understood what many people hopefully understand is that in order to live out this Christian life, we need God to be able to empower us to do it. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And that even meant that if, even though they weren't going to be indwelt for 50 days, they needed his power to come upon them, even to be able to be obedient to wait in Jerusalem until they got the indwelling Holy Spirit. Do you remember how the Bible shows us that the Spirit of God came upon Saul and he started prophesying? And everybody said, is Saul like one of the prophets? But what happened to Saul when he disobeyed? God removed his spirit from him. And that's why David in Psalm 51 says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He was afraid of that. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon believers, but he would not indwell them. We in the church age have been given a wonderful gift. It's simply because God's trying to make Israel jealous. The promises he made for Israel are ours now. He has erased our sin. He's cleansed us from all our uncleanness and he's put his spirit within us. And if we would let him, he will move us to obey his commands. But he's going to take us away. And therefore, I think the scriptures kind of lean toward the fact that during this tribulation period, the believers won't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He'll just come upon them to empower them to do what they need to do. But the scriptures kind of lean toward the only one sealed 
are the 144,000. Again, I may be wrong, and I hope I am. But I have to be faithful to show you what I believe the Scripture says using the whole of Scripture. And go with me to Revelation chapter 7. Let me show you something. Revelation chapter 7. Now, we haven't gotten to these uh, bowls yet, but there's going to be a time in the second half of the tribulation where God has a bowl poured out on the sun and it scorches everyone. You want to talk about global warming? It's coming. It is coming. And I think at that time, the world's going to have all their greenhouse laws in effect and it won't change a thing. But look at verse 13 of Revelation chapter 7. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Were these believers that came out of the Great Tribulation spared the judgments on the earth? Not according to this. Everything that God was sending on the earth, they experienced as well. We also saw back in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13 that the beast was allowed to make war against the saints, and to conquer them. Folks, let me ask you a question. Does the Bible teach, even for those of us in the church age or the Old Testament, that the Bible, doesn't the Bible teach that God will sometimes allow Satan and his demons to do things to humans who are believers? We see that happened to Job. Was, was Satan not allowed to do stuff to Job even though Job was a righteous man? What about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says, Because of these great, surpassingly great revelations, a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan was allowed to torment me. And I begged God three times to take it away. And God says, No, I'm going to leave that thorn from Satan in you. Scripturally, I lean. I can't say that's the way it's going to be because no one knows. I lean toward the fact that during this time, even believers will be stung. Because the scripture says, only those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. And I don't see believers becoming sealed by God in the tribulation period, except the 144,000. They seem to be a different group. And on top of that, like we've already seen, it's obvious that the Jews don't receive His indwelling Holy Spirit, which is a sealing, if you will until at the end of the tribulation period, which shows that they didn't have it during the tribulation period. And I don't think he's going to just seal Gentiles and not the Jews during that time. So I lean toward that during this time when these demons are allowed to strike everybody and they'll want to die, but they can't. I don't see anywhere that the scripture says that the believers will be spared this. Let me ask you a question. If I'm right, I hope I'm not. If I'm right, why would God allow that? Okay, for his purpose. Good answer. But what might that be? To draw us closer to him? Definitely. <laughs> to give evidence of who saved us. Is that where you're going, Rachel? Isn't that after the, the, the um, rapture? So 
that didn't believe until after, then they have to go through that. Well, these are believers that are saved after the rapture, for sure, that are getting stung. And like Mark said, doesn't the Bible teach that how we respond to what God brings into our life is an opportunity for us to bring glory to God by how we respond to it? That could be one reason. These people could be used as witnesses that even in the midst of all this, God's still God. When the rest of them, as you're going to see, don't go in that way. Did you raise your hand a second ago or are you just stretching? Okay. Again, that's that. If you want to go into it more, I got a lot more scriptures, but God only let me show you those because we got to keep moving. Go to Revelation chapter 9. Look at verses 13 through 21. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before, the, before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. By the way, this hasn't happened yet, but don't you think they're ready? They were released to kill a third of mankind, and the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. For those of you that don't know how to do that math, that's 200 million. Okay? That's 200 million. And I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in their, is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents which, with heads and by means which, of which they wound them. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up the worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. And neither did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, for years, if you've been studying scripture and looking at prophecy especially, you've heard Bible teachers teach that this army of 200 million is who? China. Because what we try to do is we look at the scriptures and then we read our newspapers and we try to make things fit, ignoring a lot of stuff that's here and some human reason. And for years, people have said, oh, that army of 200 million, that's China. They're, they have enough people to do all that and blah, blah, blah. Folks, as you'll see from the description here, again, these are demons. And you want further evidence that this is demons and not China? The Chinese army of 200 million could not fit in Israel if you did the math. If you take 200 million people and then take their weaponry and everything and you actually break down the land of Israel into its square footage and try to put so many people per square foot, an army wouldn't even fit in Israel of that size. Quit being logical, I know. What's wrong with, what's wrong with me? This is, these are demons, folks. I'm sorry? Well, and we're going to get to that in just a second because actually Duke bringing up an interesting point. He's saying Israel now or the Israel that actually God gave them. And actually we're going somewhere because I think there's a hint toward that in this passage. Where are these angels bound? At the river Euphrates. Now, for most of us, 
we would just say, hey, I remember the name of that river. I know it's somewhere over there in the Middle East. Go with me to Genesis, Genesis chapter 15. And I'll answer your question, Duke, in just a second. So, Genesis 15, look at verses 18 through 21. God's promised Abram that he's going to be a mighty nation, and he's promised him this land. In Genesis 15, verse 18, look what he says. It says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Debusites. So he said, from the river of Egypt, which is what? The Nile, all the way to the river Euphrates. And if you do a study of the land that God actually gave to Israel and promised Israel, and you do an actual Trace the borders, because the scriptures do tell you exactly where all that land is. You'll find that the river Euphrates is the northernmost border of the land that God gave Israel. What we know of as Israel now is not even close to what God actually gave to them and said, this is all yours. When this day comes that God fulfills this promise and they get it ultimately, because as you remember, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob never received the land. And I don't have time to go back and walk you through, but I could show you passage upon passage upon passage where God said out of his own mouth to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land. Did Abraham ever receive the land? No. Did Isaac ever receive the land? No. Jacob didn't either. It wasn't until the time of Moses and actually at the end of Moses' time when Joshua led them in that God began to give them the land. And they ultimately never even fully received all that God had promised in the fulfillment of everything. And when we see the boundaries in the scriptures. Actually, if you did a study of this, you would find that the land of Israel that God promised is going to incorporate Lebanon that we know today, Jordan, and most of Syria. By the way. If I were to say that within hearing of some of the people in that part of the world, would they get excited about that? <laughs> They're fussing over the little bit that they have now. If they let the scriptures speak and they see what God is ultimately going to give Israel because he promised them. And by the way, that's further evidence of the fact that Jesus is going to come back and literally rule on this earth. Because that's when Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are going to come and reign with him. And that's when they're going to we're going to be able to sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Because if there is no literal coming back of Jesus literally to this earth, literally ruling and reigning, then he broke his promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and they never received it. But Hebrews chapter 11 twice says these died never having received what was promised and then it says but they will with us together when Jesus comes back folks when he does come back I think at that time is when the land will be at its full at this time when this judgment is coming I still think it's going to be a small unless again here's speculation because there's some things we know are coming we don't know their timing we know the Bible talks about a war that's coming where Gog and Magog is going to happen, and the question is whether or not it's going to happen prior to the, 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 the tribulation period. Or I'm going to show you scripturally, I lean toward it beginning at the midpoint, culminating at the end of the tribulation. I'll show you all that in great detail when we get to that part. But also there's going to be a Psalm 83 war and an Isaiah 17 war. Because if you look at the nations involved in Psalm 83 and Isaiah 17, they're the nations right there on the border of Israel, and they're not included in the nations coming against Israel in the Gog and the Magog battle. So some would think that maybe prior to the Gog and the Magog battle, 
that those nations are defeated in the Psalm 83 and the Isaiah 17 war. And maybe, Duke, at that time, they do get more of the land. We don't know. But that's a possibility. It's a good question. There's a whole lot of stuff still going on that we don't know. Don't try to figure it all out. Know what the book says. Know what the book says. Know what the book says. So that when and if things happen in our time, we'll know because the scripture will say that. That's what the spirit will confirm. That's what I've been showing you. Again, prophecy is not for us to figure it all out. We're going to take literally what it says. If it's symbolic, the Bible will tell us. Otherwise, we're going to say, Lord, you said these things. Remember how we started this study? Must take place. Four times in the book of Revelation, it says these things must take place. And it's the exact same word must that says we must be born again. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. We believe those musts, don't we? Believe that these things must take place. Don't try to symbolize them. For years, I used to read Revelation and try to figure out these things with the tails that sting and try to figure out if it was an Apache helicopter or, well, well, whose nations are these colors? And maybe this is, you know what? If the Bible wanted us to tell what nation it was, it would tell us. As we do a study, we'll find these are demons that are released on the earth. Oh, and remember what the angel or the eagle flying in midair said at the end of the fourth trumpet? He said, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpets about to be blown by the next three angels. By the way, did you catch that? Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth, not the unbelieving inhabitants. Did you catch it? But the inhabitants of the earth. There's no evidence that believers will be spared what is going to happen. And God a lot of times has the rain fall on the just and the unjust. So, go to Joel chapter 3. I'm not going to spend too much time on this tonight because when we get to the second coming of Jesus, we're going to spend a lot more time on this. Joel chapter 3, look at verses 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. When's this going to be, by the way? At the end of the tribulation period, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Good for you, Jeremy. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, who? Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have what? And have divided up my land. By the way, is the United States spared this coming judgment? We have been just as guilty, Republican or Democrat, in telling Israel to give up the land for peace. And this says that in that time, listen closely, because I'm going to show you something that some of you might not have ever seen before. When he restores the fortunes of Jerusalem, Judah and Jerusalem, he's going to gather all the nations into the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is right there outside of, outside of Jerusalem. And he's going to judge them according to how they treated who? Israel. Go with me in your memories, because we're going to dive into this in a lot more detail later on. Go with me in your memories to the parable of the sheep and the goats. Because in Matthew 25, I think it's verse 20, uh, 31, it says, In those days when God comes and sets up His glory, and comes in His glory and all His holy angels with Him, and He's going to sit on His throne, and He's going to gather all the nations to Him. 
and he's going to judge them according to how they treated, well, in Matthew's account, it's called these brothers of mine. Because I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat, and I was thirsty, and you gave me water. I was in prison, and you visited me. And they said, wait a minute, the sheep said, when did we do this? He said, whenever you did it to the least of these, you've done it to me, these brothers of mine. Folks, do you not realize that Matthew 25 in the sheep and the goats is not talking about who gets into heaven and who doesn't get into heaven? Do we get into heaven because we gave somebody water? Are we allowed into heaven because we visited somebody in prison? That's works righteousness. No, we're granted salvation because of faith in Jesus Christ. If you look at the context and you parallel it with Joel chapter 3, when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, he's going to gather all the nations that are left alive at the end of that told stuff that's gone on during the tribulation period. And he's going to judge them according to how they treated Israel. And if they were pro-Israel during all the stuff going on in the globe and how everybody in the world hated them, he's going to say, you get to enter the millennial kingdom. If they weren't, they're cast away to judgment. We'll go into that in a lot more detail. I'll show you a whole lot more about it when we get to that part of the study of Revelation. But for right now, I think it's interesting, Duke, that these angels who are bound, who have been waiting for this moment to kill a third of mankind, just happen to be at the northernmost part of the land of Israel, the top of the border. I don't think it's an accident that that's where they're being held. Food for thought. What is the reaction, going back to Revelation chapter 9, what is the reaction of the people who were not killed by these plagues? No, no, no. We, we've already seen they wanted to die and can't, but then we see in the sixth trumpet that the third of the angels, are, uh, a third of the humankind are, are killed. They don't repent. Isn't that interesting? With all this stuff going on, you've got to keep in mind all the stuff that's been happening across the globe all the things that are happening to the seas and the rivers, and it's obvious things are coming from above. They don't repent. Now, let me just take you in the time we have left tonight in a very important study about this topic and listen for us as well as believers. Now, I'm going to talk to you tonight about the judgment of God. And as I do, I'm going to be talking about His judgment toward unbelievers for most of it. At the end, I will flip it and show you what the scripture says about God's judgment for those of us who are believers. So right now, as I talk to you about what I'm going to talk to you about, please know that I'm mainly talking about unbelievers. Don't try to read into that God's going to do this to you as a believer. Because what I'm going to show you in God's judgment is for the unbeliever first. I will explain to you when it switches to judgment for the believer. Are you with me so far? Because I don't want to go down this road with you thinking I'm talking about that God could do this to a believer. Because what I'm going to show you is not meant for believers. The Bible says we're sealed and protected and eternally secure. But that doesn't mean there's not a judgment for us either, though. All right? The Bible says that we need to beware of a hardened heart. This is a very, very, very bad place to be. I'm talking to unbelievers first. I'll talk to believers about a hardened heart in a little bit. There does come scripturally a time where God shuts the door of people's hearts so that they cannot believe anymore. Do you remember we've already seen in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that he was going to send a strong delusion so that it would be very, very hard for anybody to believe during this time period. But scripturally, I want you to know that the Bible teaches that for the unbeliever, there comes a point where God says your opportunity to be saved is gone. It's too late. You've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You've rejected his call on your life, and no more 
can you be saved? By the way, who shut the door of the ark? God did. Yes, he was protecting Noah and his family, but he was also sealing the deal for everybody else. Go with me to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, look at verses 37 through 40. Verse 37 of John chapter 12, Though he, meaning Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So I want you to listen closely to what it says here. They would not believe, therefore God made it so that they could not believe. Did they have a choice? Yes. But there came a point when they had continually chosen to not believe that God said, now you can't believe. God does harden people's hearts, but only after they have hardened it themselves in a continual rejection of the call of God for salvation. Now, again, I'm going to talk to you about believers before we close tonight, and you need to stick with me because I want to give a warning to believers as well. I'm not going to warn you that you may lose your salvation. No, you, you're, you're going to heaven if God's given you his spirit. I didn't ask. I didn't say if you were baptized. I didn't say if you prayed a prayer. I said if he's given you his spirit and you know whether or not the spirit's in you. Well, Jim, how do you know? Romans chapter eight says his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're his children. If you don't know, you better go spend some time with God, because the Bible says those of us who have the spirit know that we're saved. John five, first John, chapter five, verse 13. I write these things to you believe in the name of God that you may know that you have eternal life. His spirit will testify with your spirit that you're his. Now, Satan makes us all wonder sometimes because he's a jerk. But ultimately, the spirit of God confirms in our hearts that we're his. But for the unbeliever, there comes a point where God says, I gave you ample opportunity. The door has been shut and now you cannot. And I want to give you an example of this from Pharaoh. Now, I want you to go with me here and be willing to make some marks in your Bible because it's one of the most interesting studies I've ever seen along this line. Go to Exodus chapter 7. Go to Exodus chapter 7 and look at verses 1 through 4. And I want to be giving you quizzes all the way through this, so pay attention. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Stick with me. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by the great acts of judgment. All right, and the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel out from among them. Now, if you were to read that in and of itself, it sounds like God has already decided I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to have a choice. Doesn't it read that way? I put in notes in my Bible in a little parentheses next to that in time. In other words, I will harden Pharaoh's heart in time because I'm going to show you that if we follow along in what the scripture says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart all the way until a certain point where God flips it. And from that point on, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
You're going to see the difference. Now, why does God say, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart? Because he already knows how it's all going to play out. He already knows how Pharaoh's going to actually be. And he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But that doesn't mean Pharaoh didn't have a choice. Did Jesus know that, John, sorry, that Judas was never one of them? Did Jesus know that Judas was never going to be one of them? Did Jesus continually offer to Judas a chance to be saved? Even to the point when he comes to arrest him, he says, friend, friend, why have you come? Look now at Exodus chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and the quiz shall begin. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Pharaoh, said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Who's hardening Pharaoh's heart, God or Pharaoh? Very good. Exodus 7, 22 and 23. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh's hearts remained hardened. And, and sorry, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not even take this to heart. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh or God? Pharaoh. Go to chapter 7, um, verses, uh, sorry, chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that he was, he was uh, sorry, saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pretty clear on this one, isn't it, folks? Who, who's hardened Pharaoh's heart here? Pharaoh. Go to chapter 8, verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh, Pharaoh did. Go to chapter Turn my page here, go to chapter 8, look at verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Who's hardening Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh, go to chapter 9, verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Again, who? Pharaoh. Look at verse 12. This is interesting here. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, and the Lord, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart this time? God did. Now, this is an interesting thing here. Don't, don't think you know where we're going next. Don't jump to the conclusion that the rest of the answers are God. Because look at verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He and his servants. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart there? Pharaoh did. So when, just prior to this, God flips the switch, but he gives him one more opportunity. I, and I can't answer for God because none of us know how to trace out his paths, as Romans 11, 33 through 36 says. But there's a chance that God gave him a taste of what a real hardened heart, ultimately hardened by God, feels like. Gave him a chance to say, I don't like how that feels. And he hardened his own one again. But look at verse 35 now. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Chapter 10, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Who's hardened the heart of Pharaoh now? God. Look at Exodus chapter 10, verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Who was doing the hardening? God. Look at verse 27. But the Lord, had hard, Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Again, who? Look at chapter 11, verse 10. 
Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. God. Do you see it? God says, I know how it's all going to play out. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But it's only after he chooses to harden it himself. And folks, we shouldn't be surprised that at this point of the revelation in the tribulation period, even though all these things are happening, that the world says, we're not going to repent. And Thumner knows that God, the Bible says there is such a thing as an ultimate rejection of the Holy Spirit. And there comes a point where God says, you had your chance. Now I'll make it so that you cannot believe. Now, this isn't where you want to end up, is it? I don't think there's any more worse place to be than in that condition. Because not only are you damned, you're stacking up reward on the wrong end the whole rest of your life. Doesn't the Bible say that when they stand before the great white through judgment, books are opened and everything they did that had been recorded in the books? Not only are they guaranteed that they're going to go to hell because they had their opportunity and they said no, they're now stacking up all this other stuff. Now, listen to me carefully. Is it our job to determine whether or not God shut the door on somebody? Don't even try to figure out who, who's at that point. Because the Bible teaches that we're to offer salvation to the last minute continually because you just never know where they stand. And don't you think for yourself, well, that person's hardened their heart and God's hardened. Don't you put yourself in God's position. I'm teaching you scriptural truth. I'm warning you, don't try to play God and figure out who is and who isn't. Preach to them all like they have a chance because they do right to the end. We see Jesus even save the thief on the cross at the last moment of his life. So God is merciful. He doesn't want anyone to perish. But ultimately, the scripture does say there comes a point where he will harden people's hearts. Now, in the time we have left, I want to talk to you believers. Will God make it so that we lose our salvation because of continual sinning? So do we have to not worry about it then? I mean, are we so protected that we don't have to worry about the judgment of God as believers? No, the Bible says that there's such a thing as a sin unto death for believers. We don't have time to get into all that, but you'll see it. And John, James talks about it when he talks about if someone sinned, pray for them and God will forgive them. I'm not talking about the sin unto death because there is a sin unto death. I'm not saying pray that that person will be spared because if God's chosen that he's taken somebody home early. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They didn't lose their salvation, folks. I believe without question they were believers, a part of the church. Peter says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? In other words, Peter assumed the Holy Spirit was indwelling them. For them to come up with this concoction and try to pretend to the church that they had given the whole amount. Peter says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? In other words, the Spirit of God that lives within you. Ananias and Sapphira are an example of the fact that the Bible does teach that there comes a point where God says, if you walk in continual disobedience, even though you've been sealed by my spirit, even though you're guaranteed eternity, you're doing more damage for the kingdom than good. I'm going to take you home early. And for those of you that were there when I taught Sunday at First Baptist Merritt Island, we saw that Paul said to the church in Corinth as they were taking the Lord's Supper incorrectly. And by the way, it wasn't that they weren't considering what Jesus did for them. It was that they weren't treating each other well. And in doing so, he said, because of this, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and others have died talking to the church. Folks, when our kids 
were younger, I used to think that parenting was to give them the rules and make sure they obeyed the rules. And then when they didn't obey the rules, I was to come down hard to scare them so that they would obey the rules from there on out. And I came to realize that's not how you parent. Because God had given me the responsibility to train my children, to teach them, and to, to discipline them. And the word discipline means to train and to teach. Some of you probably were raised by parents that thought that if they just beat you enough, you'd stop. And those of you know full well, the more that you were given the law, the more you wanted to do the opposite, didn't you? So at a certain time in my life, as God was teaching me about grace versus legalism, in the end of my time period as pastor here at First Baptist in the Atlantic, God began to shape how we raised our children when it came to discipline. And I'm going to tell a story on AJ. There was a night that AJ was sent by mom and dad to go brush his teeth, put his pajamas on, and get ready for bed. And so we sent him. And that night, he sinned. He didn't get his pajamas on. He didn't brush his teeth. He got distracted by, of all things, a book. We got horrible kids, I know. And when we were about an hour later realizing we haven't seen AJ come out to give us the goodnight kiss, I went to his room and he was sitting on his bed reading. The old, I know, what a horrible kid, you know? <laughs> the old dad would have brought the hammer down and said, you disobeyed us. Here's your punishment. But God had begun to do a work in my heart. And he, said, he showed me that my responsibility is not to punish my son, but to teach him and to train him and to discipline. And the discipline is a training, not a punishment. There's a big difference. And so I sat down with him and I said, let me ask you a question. You did hear us say, get ready for bed. Yes. What's going on now? I got distracted. And then I said, let me ask you a question, AJ. Was there a time when you were sitting here reading that a thought went through your mind, I should get ready for bed because mom and dad told me to get ready for bed? He said, yes. I said, what did you do with that thought? He said, I pushed it away. I said, that's what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about whether or not you obeyed us. I want to get to the deeper issue. Because you don't realize, it seems like a small little thing when the Spirit of God talks to you when you ignore Him. But the more we do that, the better we get at pushing out that little voice, the conviction of the Spirit, the easier it gets, and we move down a road to what the Bible calls a hard heart, and that's a dangerous place to be. Folks, those of you that have fallen into some grave sins in your lifetime, you never intended to go there, did you? It started with something small, but you learned to say, it's not that big of a deal when the Spirit of God says, don't even go there. Don't look at it. Don't have this meal with her by yourself. Don't do this. And when you got good at tuning it out, it got easier and easier and easier. And next thing you know, you're in full-blown adultery, alcoholism, whatever it is. Tell me that isn't how it happened. And so, folks, I want to challenge you as believers tonight as we close. We could sit here and look at how the world, how could they not repent? Well, the reason is they got a hard heart and they won't. But we have to be careful as well. When the Spirit of God is convicting us, because we still sin. I don't know about you. I still sin. I still am tempted. I still struggle. 
But I'm learning how to listen to when the Spirit of God lovingly convicts. When your kids were little and you were baking something in the oven and the glass was hot, when the two-year-old toddled up to the front of the oven, you might have said, honey, don't touch that, it's hot. If the kid reached their hand up again, you might have pushed their hand away and said, honey, look at me, that is very hot, don't touch that. If the kid reached again, you might have even slapped their hand, right? Eventually, if the child kept trying to touch it, what did you do? Put your lips on it if you want to. Why did you do that? You realized that the only way they were going to learn was to run with Satan. Isn't that what the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? You get a man here who's sleeping with his mother's, sorry, he's sleeping with his, uh, sorry, a guy who's sleeping with his father's wife. He says, hand him over to Satan so that his soul may be saved. In other words, the Bible says Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's out there looking for someone to mess with and to chew up. And God is always saying, don't run with him. Stay away. Flee. Avoid it. But if we continually try to go down that road, even though the Spirit of God keeps telling us in love, don't go there. Ultimately, God says, you want to go there? Go. Put your lips on it if you want to. Isn't that what happened with the prodigal son? The guy came to his father and says, you're as good as dead to me. I don't want to wait, wait till you die to get my inheritance. You're dead to me now. And most of us would have said to our kid, over my dead body. But the father in this story who is God says, here's the money. Go. Go get your fill. And when they had come to his senses after Satan had mauled him, the father threw a party when he came back in repentance. Folks, I say to you in love, there is a sin unto death. I hope none of us ever get there. I hope none of us ever get there. Stay sensitive to the Spirit of God. When we come back next week, we're going to look at chapter 10. An interesting little interlude in the midst of all this. John is taken into a little interlude in chapter 10. and He's told to eat this scroll. And we're going to take a look at what that's all about next week. Thanks so much for coming. We'll see you then.